0: You know, we have a, a global pandemic here. You don't have to learn French or paint a masterpiece or you know write King Lear, just calm down. My favorite sort of saying about this that I, that I often say is that no one has to fail so I can succeed. Yes. No one has to fail so I can succeed. Write that down, people. Put it on your thing, whatever you're doing in life. That fear never leaves you. We all think the imposter syndrome, we all have it. Don't worry if you have it. If you don't have it, let me tell you this way, if you don't have it, quit. You bring your own weather to the picnic. That's the one I, that's the, that's the one I, I try to uh, I tell them all the time. You bring your own weather to picnic. The other one is that uh, every person you meet has hopes and dreams. So if you see someone on the street, be the richest man, the poorest man, be someone you'd hate, you're troubled or whatever, just remember they have hopes and dreams. And it helps humanize and give you empathy.
1: Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast Welcome back, everyone. I hope you had a lovely Easter break. I'm still in a bit of a hot cross bun coma, if I'm honest. I'm so excited about this week's episode because most of you know I'm a diehard crime fiction reader and I've been making a lot more time for reading lately. So I'm fangirling a little bit over our guest for today, the wonderful Harlan Coben. As much as I consume crime novels, movies, podcasts, and TV shows, I've never actually had the chance to meet or speak to one of the many authors I admire. So I was absolutely bowled over when Harlan agreed to join the show from New Jersey. To many of you, he probably needs no introduction, but in case you didn't already know, Harlan is the number 1 New York Times author of 31 novels with over 70 million books in print worldwide, published in 43 languages around the globe. If you haven't watch Netflix hits Safe or the Stranger yet. They're up with my favorite shows and both are from Harlan to add to the many other screen adaptations of his work in lots of different languages. As part of his 14 book deal with Netflix, he has another exciting series coming, The Woods. So keep an eye out for that. I absolutely can't wait. I am binging through Netflix like it's going out of fashion. I swear I've almost run out of things to watch. I've just finished his latest book as well, The Boy from the Woods, that I read in one day. I Couldn't put it down, and as you'll hear, there's some excellent twists thrown into the mix. And was thrilled to hear from the man himself about the many years it took to make it as an author, his process for writing, the snacks he enjoys during writing, his dinners with American presidents, and his normal New Jersey life as a dad. I hope you enjoy. Harlan Thank you so much for joining the show. It's
0: nice to be here. How are you today?
1: I'm well, thank you. This is such a life highlight. I've been reading your books for so many years and uh, I'm a total crime fiction nut, so you're basically my Oprah. Wow, well, thank you. <laughs> We've got a Harlan Coben bookcase in our house, so. <laughs> Firstly, I mean, how are you in New Jersey? You know, you're not far from New York where things are quite crazy at the moment. Uh,
0: we're in the epicenter here. We're in Bergen County, New Jersey, which has uh, our county just went over 10,000 cases today or yesterday. So uh, we're hunkered down. Um, I have three of my four kids with me here for about a month now, a little over, I think. You know, uh, for me, for me personally, just forgetting all the outside world and the problems, social isolating is not all that hard. It's kind of what I do. (laughs) It's a fine line between social isolating and being an awfulist. Uh, Obviously, it's horrible. I've had a lot of friends who've gotten sick and things like that. And I worry about my, you know, the kids getting their lives back on track, but the actual social isolation aspect for me personally is not that bad. So I have nothing to complain about.
1: Mm, I, I think it's funny. I've uh, actually been finished writing my first book, which is a nonfiction book. It's the "Seize the A concept, but just in a book form. And I've never been more productive. It's like, I'm not even going out of the house. I can't do anything but write. It's been really productive for me.
0: <laughs> well, a lot of times what people are finding, I mean, especially here, I think I don't know how quarantined you guys are quite yet or if you're, but you know, you got to give yourself a break. I beat myself mm. up and we'll probably be talking about that a lot, but you know, we have a a global pandemic here. You don't have to learn French or paint a masterpiece or, you know, write King Lear. Just calm down and, (laughs) you know, enjoy yourself a little bit as much as you can. Don't worry, you're not going to be, you know, Mary Poppins, you're not going to teach the kid advanced calculus, calm down, it'll be fine.
1: Oh, that's so true. I think it's it's we've been given this sort of accidental and and tragic, obviously, but almost beautiful opportunity to stop and and slow down and interrupt that productivity hamster wheel that we're all on. But I think almost some people feel, you know, more pressure because they don't have the excuses or the daily grind to become, you know, a painter or an author or to do all that. You know, I was speaking to Mark Manson the other day and he's, like, I've just got so much pressure to write a new book during this time. Everyone's like, when's the new book coming out of isolation? And <laughs> he's like, what if I just want to rest, you know, and, and enjoy the time?
0: I give anybody out there, I give permission. You just do your thing, you know, do what's going to make you happy and keep you sane right now.
1: Yeah, I think there was a, a tweet you did recently. It's a Yiddish proverb. And I know you grew up Jewish. The, the tweet was, man plans and God laughs and I saw a millennial version of that which was a meme that said it's like earth sent us to our rooms to think about what we've done and I think that's exactly what we're doing. Man
0: Plan plans I mean it's, it's good life advice wherever you are now and you picture yourself five years from now, ten years from now as you know you're never there it just doesn't happen so be ready for that. But it's yeah. also the exciting part of life,
1: so. Yeah, absolutely. So before we kick off with way WayTA, I'd love to start asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them, particularly for someone who has 70 million books out there and, you know, the top high-flying Netflix series on right now are from your brain, so I think there's probably a bit of a glossy surface going on on the outside, but what's something very down-to-earth about you to break the
0: ice? Uh, pretty much everything. Uh, I think it was Flaubert who said to be um, to be uh, regular and bourgeois in your life so you may be violent and original in your work. At the end of the day, I mean, uh, my kids are starting to, are, are growing a little bit. They were, we were empty, just becoming empty nesters. Of course, now they're all back. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just dad. I'm just a, a dad who hangs at home. I don't really do much. I don't go out very much. I'm not a party animal. I that's my my normal sort of being is that, you know, people think oh, you must have had a lot of exciting things happen that you write these exciting books. But no, it, my regular life is is fairly boring. So I would say a lot of things about me are down to earth. But mostly, I guess, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just like a regular dad. If you also look at my thing, you'll see my kid cop got me to do a TikTok with her a couple of weeks
1: ago. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When
0: Boy from the Woods hit number one, she said, we'll celebrate with a, a TikTok, which Frankly, we should have rehearsed a little bit. It's not very good. But, you know, that's... And I I, I often put on my Instagram the uh, text I share with the kids. And if you look at... Sometimes my comments, you can always tell, like, my kids will just comment with the word, ew, I <laughs> am not. You know, so that's where I would say I'm most, uh, most uh, down to earth, just that.
1: Oh, my God. I love that so much. I think that's why I love these chats so much, is you forget... I mean, we hear of Harlan Coburn as this famous name that has all these shiny books and amazing TV shows, but I love showing that everyone's just a person. You know, everyone's normal. Everyone has their day-to-day life. And I have,
0: a, I mean, I have a lot of super famous friends and, and the ones that are for real friends are just as normal as normal can be.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: They have the glamorous parts of their life, but most, most people's lives are, I'm, I say this in a way that I don't mean to sound negative drudgery, it's what you do daily, uh, you are alone most of your time you're not being celebrated and people who need that frankly are usually troubled mm. so you don't want to deal with them anyway
1: yeah for sure <laughs> So the first section is called Way to Yate where we pretty much discuss the 10 years in the making that every overnight success actually involves to get there and uh, maybe even more than 10 years in most cases. So let's go all the way back to young Harlan from Newark, New Jersey. I love that you've stayed in New Jersey and very ambitious. I think a born leader being school council president and you know what were you like as a kid and one of the most interesting things I read is that you didn't know that you wanted to write until senior year of college. So what did you first think
0: you wanted to be? Was it
1: politics or? I'm a pro
0: basketball player.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: I'm 6'4", and I played, I played in high school and in college at the university. So uh, up until, I guess, around 15 or 16, I think bat, pro basketball was sort of what I wanted to be until I realized, nah, that ain't going to happen.
1: No way.
0: Yeah, no, I never... I was—I would say I was a fairly ordinary kid. I was probably more popular than most authors. I was an athlete. I was president of student council, captain of the basketball team. That sort of—that sort of thing. Though I didn't really like high school. So um, I think you probably, as a kid, and, and I think most of my teachers probably flip over when they hear that now I'm a writer. I was a good student, but I don't think there's any particular extreme writing talent. I didn't have a book in my hand all the time. I like to read. I always am suspicious, frankly. You've interviewed a lot of writers, and I'm always suspicious of the writer who goes, I always knew I would be a writer. When I was a three-month-old fetus, a pen <laughs> formed in my mother's womb, and I, I started to write, and, and then children gathered around me in the playground when I told them I and mean, He got beaten up in my neighborhood for that, and I didn't grow up in a tough neighborhood, so I kind of don't really fully buy that story.
1: Well, I love to know that you don't have to have you know, being a prolific author from the time you were a kid to become a really successful author later. And I think part of why I love this section, you know, all the time is because no story doesn't have later entries or big diversions or things like that. You know, very, very few people wake up when they're five and go, I'm going to be what I'm going to actually end up being. It's just not how it works. A wife
0: who's a pediatrician can say she did. She knew when she was four years old, she was going to be a pediatrician and she is. But that's amazing. Exactly right. You're, you're, and also when it comes to this this sort of thing, I'm sure you, this is why your podcast is so popular. If you ask 10 people how they do it, they'll get 11 different answers. The key is to find your own, you know, you find your own path and to have the ambition. Let's call it ambition because there's nothing wrong with being ambitious to reach that level. I mean, I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think the, you know, the one thing that, people's stories do have in common is that they've stayed open-minded to that roller coaster nature of things and being like, I don't need to know what the next step is. It could be completely different from basketball to writing. You know, that's not necessarily the most logical step that you think you'd take. So you ended up studying political science at Amherst University. Why did you choose that as your specialization? Was that when you thought, you know, I'm not going to be a basketballer, I should do something else? I think I've read in maybe 20 interviews of yours that you were school friends with Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. Was it his influence that made you think about politics? Oh, God, no. Oh, no way. Political science (laughs) is sort
0: of a euphemism for I have no idea what I want to do with my life. (laughs) Frankly, uh, it's funny because my kids are all such great students and they all work so hard in college and I didn't. What I realized right around freshman year um, of college is that I I was a pretty good writer. And if I took classes that didn't involve studying for tests, but only involved doing a couple of papers a semester, I could definitely get a B plus, even if I didn't do any of the reading and just sat the night before and wrote it. And I wouldn't have to worry about tests or have any of that anxiety. And political science had a lot of those kind of classes. So I started to gravitate in that direction. And what I loved about political science was it really is it was more about critical thinking, um, which has really helped me as a novelist and, you know, and solve the problems that are, that are plots. So that's why it wasn't, I had an interest in politics, I had an interest in political science, a lot about theory and philosophy and things like that. And I had, I guess I had more of an interest in that. But really the other thing is, I didn't have an interest in anything else. I didn't want to be pre-med. And political science, you can, and I did apply to law school, you know, but it's really kind of a, as I said, it's a euphemism for I have no idea what I want to do, there's no job. No mm. one goes, God, I'm dying for a political scientist to fill this position. <laughs>
1: I um, started out as a lawyer and that was a process of elimination too. Like what's going to keep the most doors open and science narrowed it, you know, down and law and humanities kept all the doors open. It's for the eternally undecided, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. My brothers both went to law school, needed one practices and I applied and was accepted to law school and was almost going. And then I delayed one year, two years because um, at that time I, I didn't want to write. So I got a job where I could write and I knew if I went to law school, I'd never have a chance and thank goodness I'm not a lawyer.
1: Yeah, well, I, I got to the leaving law eventually with a bit of a diversion. But um, <laughs> you started off in the travel industry of all places. How did that come about?
0: It's a family business. It was nepotism, pure and simple.
1: Oh, this is your grandfather's business and your mum ran it or something?
0: Yeah, they needed some young blood. So I worked there from the time I graduated college for eight years. Um, and I was writing at the same time. I had a, two novels published while I was still there, which is another thing. I don't recommend people quit their day job to become a novelist. I think if a book were to take you 12 months to write, if you if you had all the days, time in the world, it'll take you 14 months to write. You have to find the time. The other example I often give is Mary Higgins Clark, famous novelist who lives, used to live about two miles away from me. She died a couple, uh, I guess about a month ago now, maybe two months ago, Mary died, uh, 92. And when Mary was in her thirties, she had five children, young children, and her husband died. And then the next day, very next day, her mother-in-law died. And so Mary was left to raise these five children on her own. This is in the early 60s, I guess it was. And she had to work full time to support them. So she would wake up and write from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. and then wake the kids up and get them to school. So don't tell me you don't have time to write. If you're somebody out there saying, I just don't have the time to write, it's kind of nonsense. It means that there's other things in your life that are more important than writing. That's fine. But then you're not a writer. A writer Mm -hmm. figures a way of making time to write.
1: Yeah, I recently saw um, Elizabeth Gilbert come to Australia and her keynote is absolutely incredible. And she said the defining moment in her career after like 20 years in a tiny West Village apartment feeling sorry for herself that, you know, she wasn't making it was when she approached a writer that she'd really admired. And, you know, that woman said to her, if you're not getting your writing done, I mean, you you only have five priorities in life. That's all we all have room for. And if you're going on spring break to Spain and, you know, you're going out all the time with your friends, like that's, that's not prioritizing. That's, you're prioritizing those things over writing. So, you know, make it, you've got to sacrifice other things to get there. So yeah. When, when did you figure out that you want to write? I mean, the process from deciding I'm going to be a writer, but then to actually getting your first publishing deal, which was what, 26. That's quite young. Like, how does that happen? You know, how long does it even take you to write it? How do you, you know, figure out the details of crime? Like, where do you start?
0: I wrote to the the that. We'll never see the light of day.
1: Oh my God, I love that! You have to release them one day.
0: One day, my kids can release them one day. <laughs> uh, so I, I practiced by writing a couple full novels, um, all the way. I didn't. I didn't take classes. I didn't write short stories. I started to write. I've always liked the novel. I've only in my whole life, I think I've written altogether three short stories to this day, and I've written over oh. thirty novels. I like the uh, I like the novel. I don't like this. I, I love reading short stories. Oh my God, I love reading short stories, but I don't write them. Um, I need my I, I need the novel. I like something at the long-term relationship of a novel. So I wrote several that weren't any good um, that never got up, found a home, and then I wrote one and I sent it to somebody I knew who was at a very literary house. It was written by the Paris Review edition. I was writing, but the book was called Play Dead. It's very commercial fiction. A lot of it took place in Australia. After I visited in 80, 1986, I wrote, because back in those days, to show you how long this was, I was visiting Cairns, and there was one hotel where Americans can stay in, in Cairns back in those days. Oh my one gosh. Hotel, <laughs> Pacific International. And outside of that, if you didn't get in that hotel, and I was working the travel business, you couldn't really send Americans to Cairns. So, anyway, um, and so part of the book takes place there. And I sent it to her and asked her, you know, what's her opinion? Is it any good? Should I do something with it? And she wrote back saying, You know, we're looking to move in a more commercial direction. We want to publish it. And uh, they paid me $2,000. It wasn't exactly high-end. And I was on my way.
1: Oh my gosh, that is so cool. I mean, I always think the most fascinating time to reflect on in anyone's journey is when they went from nil to something. It's not, you know, 20 books down the track when they're in the in their groove and, you know, they got their system. It's like, how did you go from not an author to an author? And and a novel is not nothing, you know. It takes so much development. It's a it's a full-blown story. It has to be internally consistent. So, you know, how did you decide on on mystery and crime and, and how did you research, you know, the forensics and, you know, I love that so much of your story is based on New Jersey and New York, but how did you think of the themes? They're so universal and, and have you gotten faster as, as you've gone on?
0: I've, I don't think I've gotten much faster. I, I usually do about one a year, even back then. So you think of it, I, when I, but see, here's the thing. When I wrote the first two or three books and even I was published in the beginning, I was oddly practical about it where I was thinking, you know, if you open a restaurant, it loses money the first four or five years. And so why should writing be any different? Mm. So I was willing to sort of pay that price. So I wrote two or three novels that I've never seen the light of day. And I don't look at that as a waste of time. I think I probably wrote three or maybe four that I've never seen the light of day. And I look at that as, as, as taking a class and writing the best class you can possibly take, which is writing the actual book. But that's like a year. And some people say, oh my God, it's like wasting a year. It's not, because you learn, you get better for So it's kind of an interesting thing where today people expect to sort of make it right away. I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, but I'll get emails from people like, you know, I've written two self-published books and I put on Amazon or whatever else. How come I'm not sounding like you and Patterson? You know, you know, my first, my first New York Times bestseller was my 10th book. So be patient, learn your craft, enjoy the small things, but doesn't
1: work that way. Yeah, I, I actually loved that. That was my next question is that it took you until, you know, 2008 to become a New York Times bestseller.
0: No, my first New York Times bestseller was 2001. Oh, was my first time I hit number
1: one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It debuted as number one. Gosh, incredible. How has your process changed through that time? And, you know, I, I love that you've, you've done standalone novels, but you've also done, you know, series, I, now I understand your basketball initial, you know, thoughts of a career. I, I get that why, you know, there was a basketballer as your main character for so long. How did you decide what you preferred between a series or a standalone book? And I just always wonder in a series, once you've got one character over a lot of time, like even in Harry Potter, I was like, how did you tie all the things together? How do you even remember that you wrote that?
0: Sometimes I do forget. I think I one book uh, in the Myron Bulleter series, I had a guy, one of the lead characters, win part is hair on the left, and one section and part of on the right luckily you kind readers will tell me if I make a mistake like that So <laughs> I can always find out um I like both so I've written of the 30 some books I've written 11 are in the Myron Bolotar series three are in the young adult Mickey Bolotar series and I don't know I think the boy from the woods wild it could be the start of a series I, I intentionally didn't answer everything about his life I didn't think it was part of this particular story but I do think I'll probably revisit it at some point. Mm. Um, I really liked, I really loved the character. And I don't say about everyone where I want to write them again. Usually they've had their book, you know, for those who've watched The Stranger on Netflix, Adam had his book. I mean, uh, played by Richard Armitage, He had his book. I have no interest in revisiting his life. Wow. Yeah. So that's sort of how that works.
1: Oh my gosh. It was such an incredible, incredible show. And the book as well, like, Oh, just amazing. I did a little thing on our podcast community and said, you know, like if anyone else here is a, a Harlan Coben fan, I'm getting him on the podcast and people died. They've like they've, I, they've been reading since they were teenagers and everyone's followed The Stranger and you know, I'm just I'm so excited when I saw all the questions come through. And one of them was, how do you do an interpretation for TV? Like, you know, how in the book the main character is a white guy and the TV show is a biracial woman who's totally different. And I've noticed with a, a lot of your books that have turned into TV shows or movies, uh, you know, you're super open-minded to adaptations and not being literally exactly the same but still having the same essence. So how did you change from writing for novels to writing for TV and how much are you involved?
0: Very, in those shows I'm very involved. The next one's called uh, The Woods, which is, will be made on uh, Netflix, will be out pretty soon, and that was made in Poland, so you got to put up the subtitles, but it's great. I have less to do with that, though. I have a lot. To, I, you know, I'm still executive producer. I'm still very active, but with the British shows, I'm boss, so <laughs> it's, it's a little different. But it was my idea actually to have a biracial uh, woman doing it, just because I had seen Hannah, Hannah, Hannah John Kamen, and I like, that's the vibe I want on screen. Mm. Um, in a book, it's different, maybe. You know, I wrote the book a number of years ago, but I wanted that vibe. I didn't, visually it didn't work to have a computer nerd white guy saying the same thing to a white guy. It just didn't, we called people in and then we tried even other men, biracial men, things like that. It just, it wasn't working. And then Hannah did work. So I try, I don't really do it for politically correct reasons. I actually think that, and this sounds so fake, Diversity makes the show stronger. I know mm. it sounds so fake. Not at all. Some people say, you know, you're, I'm trying you're trying to be politically correct, or whatever. Really not. I mean, I just, you know, I do whatever slave to the story, and it was just better to have Hannah. A, the stranger that, that first scene, which was so important when she comes in and drops that bomb on him. And It was just like, and I remember, you know, watching them do it in a table read, and it turned to my producing part. I'm like, bang, that's what I wanted. That's I talked to Hannah a long time, like, you got to be the coolest person in the room when you walk in there That first time. You're just dropping the bomb like it's nothing. And so that was the reason. The other thing is, is I think the worst adaptations are slavishly devoted to the text. If you want the experience of reading the book, read the book. I look at myself kind of like the book, I'm the singer-songwriter of, a, of the book, right? I'm the singer-songwriter of The Stranger. I made it into a hit. But now other people are going to cover it. I don't want them to cover it and sound exactly like me. I want a woman to cover it. I want someone from Spain to cover it. I want someone with a cool accent and has a different beat to cover it. If I wanted the exact same song I already sang, I would just keep it myself. So I love the idea of taking it to other countries, changing it around, adding things to it, as long as we keep the heart and soul, as long as you're keeping the song to keep it within my, my piss-poor mat- metaphor. Um, that's kind of how it works for me.
1: That is so cool. I'm so fascinated by it. It's just so cool to see that. I think a lot of authors probably don't get a say in what characters they've created end up looking like. But it must be so cool to get to choose who you thought embodied the person you created. That's yeah, so, I, so I, I'm very
0: lucky. My deal with Netflix and it was true with this with Safe uh, and True. I think you have the five, but it's you have the five in Australia in Australia, but it's not on. Um, it's not on Netflix. I think it's on SBS yeah. on land or something.
1: Safe is though. I watch Safe and it's amazing.
0: And all the other ones will be uh, in Australia, and The Woods is completely different. I can't wait for people to see it. It's six episodes. It's beautifully filmed. It's very atmospheric. It, you know, The Stranger is go go go. I hit the accelerator. Not one. We just go. Uh, this it's much. It's more thoughtful, more character driven. I love it. So, if you have if you're at home at Netflix and you've already seen The Stranger, and say, put on your on your list The Woods. Actually, if you search my name, you put Netflix.com back <laughs> uh, Colin Coben all the shows pop up. So just do a search and and put whatever, and put them on your watch list. I think you'll like it.
1: So, I mean, did you ever expect in your journey that you would become a Netflix sensation? Like, you know, you've got a 14 book deal. You started as as an author that wrote four books before you even got published. The first adaptation on screen was a French film in 2006. So how did that come about? And had you aimed to take your writing onto screen or was it by accident and then you loved it? And yeah, how did that progression of your career happen?
0: Well, you know, in America, it's maybe it's getting better now, but people like will option and tell you how much they love your books, and and never make anything or make crap. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean, I meanly, it just doesn't work. So for years and years, I was optioning my books to Hollywood, and oh my God, every actor you can think of was attached to it. Liam Neeson was attached, and Ben Affleck was attached. Now Tom Cruise is reading it every week. I would hear something different, and nothing um, would get done. And in the case of Tell No One. They wrote a screenplay. I think it's Columbia Sony. Wrote a screenplay. Two very famous screenwriters. I won't say their names. And I read it, and it was terrible. I mean, it was so bad. And so I had it out. And this crazy French guy named Guillaume Canet is calling me on the phone. And I love his ideas, and I love his passion. And I finally said to him, "You know what? If you can match the option money, I'll just piss off everybody in Hollywood and give it to you." And I never regretted it. You you know, he won. They won four Oscars. He won Best Director, Guillaume Canet. They won Best Film. Of uh, their, uh, their version of the Golden Globe for best film. It was a, a really big success. So that's when I realized it's not important to have the name or whatever else. It's just more important that you, that you try to do the work where you can, as much as you can. And it, most, I'm ridiculously lucky because almost no author has as much control as I do as the, as the, with this Netflix deal. So mm-hmm. I get that. And you also have to be willing to let go. You know, you have, you, you, if you're going to, you know, you, you can't be crying about it. So, that's sort of how I started doing what I what I'm doing
1: now. That's so cool. What about how you feel when you actually write? So you know, I think you tweeted again recently. Um- God, my lawyer self does so much crazy research on everyone. (laughs) I think you wrote, I don't like writing, but I like having written. And I find that, you know, even when I, back when I did my legal thesis, I found with any form of long form writing, I, you know, I get so anxious to make it perfect and the actual process stresses me out, but I feel so good having produced something beautiful at the end and creating the lyrical rhythm of paragraphs and... You know what was it like what's it like for you when you write do ideas come to you do you you know do you sit and stare for a few hours and then something just comes out what's your actual process like and yeah do you work with the police as well i think yeah i thought that was another
0: really interesting question two questions i guess i'll answer the research one kind of first i'm a lazy researcher Um, really yeah i'm mostly from the hum a few bars and fakers school of research i know just enough to get me in trouble <laughs> and, well, I, and I just make stuff up. I mean, I'll have somebody check it later on. But I don't. I, here's the problem with research and why if you're a new novelist, I'm one of the few writers who says to you, do not do research because research is more fun than writing. So you'll be sitting there and you'll go, oh, you know what? I got to place this. I want to place this scene at the Sydney Opera House. But I forget. I got to go to it. I have to walk around. I have to see what No, no, no. You've been there before. Use Google Earth. Write the damn scene now. <laughs> then worry about the exact stuff later on. Don't use writing as an ex- research as an excuse not to write. The second reason is research, you get you get you fall in love with your research. So you find some cute little factoid. Ever read that book where the author just you could tell did so much research, you're throwing all these cute little factoids that slow the story down. Mm-hmm. That's not a problem with me because I don't know anything. So I know the the least possible, and then I'll call a cop or a friend who's a cop or a lawyer or a judge, and I'll say, okay. You know, you know, I'm just trying to think of the boy from the woods where I would have done even that. I can't even think of a spot where I did it. And I would, but I would call a friend and say, okay, I got arrested in, in Manhattan on 47th Street. What station am I going to? And then he'll tell me. And that usually get more, re, you do much better. And people always want to talk about the jobs. So I want to ask about what it's like to write a, write a podcast. I'll call you. And you'll give me that little, that little thing, that little moment that will make it feel real. To so that's the research side of the question.
1: I forget the second side of the question. But. <laughs> Me too. I forgot the second part of the question as well. <laughs> I also read that you do the beginning and the end first. And what I love about your books is how much they build. Like you kind of, you know, I, I'd never actually thought about the fact that it's actually bad for my anxiety to read these books because <laughs> the tension is building so much. But <laughs> as you're writing, is that building feeling of the story coming to you? Like, you know, is it sort of coming out as you're realising and you're like, oh, then this could happen? Or how do you create those twists and layers? I always read them and think, how did someone think this up in their brain?
0: <laughs> my strength and my weakness, uh, some would say, is that there's, I rarely meet a twist I don't like. I love twists. And if I come up with a crazy idea while I'm writing a book, I never save it for another book. It somehow ends up. So this book, you know, starts off sort of as a missing teenager who is bullied story, and by the end of it, we're dealing with repercussions that could change the whole world. Um, it just keeps going. Uh, now, I saw a lot of it before I started because I knew the ending. Uh, but in this case, actually, it's a little interesting at the end. And boy, from the woods, without giving anything away. Uh, the lead character has to make a decision on the very, very last page, the very, very last paragraph. And I thought I knew what he was going to do, but until I wrote it, I wasn't exactly sure. So I kind of was writing that last part. I'm thinking, okay, what's he going to do? And I'm like, you know what? Just write the scene and he'll either choose A or B and he chose. Um, But for other than that, like who did it, who did whatever, how that, all the rest of that stuff, I I know, I don't know how they're going to get caught. I don't know how it's all going to resolve, but I know, so to speak, who did it before we start.
1: Oh my god, that's so cool! <laughs> Literally, I've been reading these books for so long, and I've never been able to ask anyone—you know—how it all comes out. It's just so fascinating. And even, you know, with this book, there's two main twists. I, I was thinking at the time, like, I wonder if he knew these were going to happen, or if it just kind of hit you and you were like, "Yep, that's how it's going to be." I knew
0: all the twists, except I wasn't sure what was going to happen in that very last, that last page or paragraph until I—I I thought maybe 20 or 30 pages out what was going to happen I was right but until <laughs> I wrote it, <laughs> until I, wrote it um, I was really it sounds so corny I was really trying to leave it up to wild to make that decision instead of me and the book really could have gone either way but I, I, I but then I reread it now I'll say no no it had to be that ending. there's another way the other the other decision would not have worked at all So there you go
1: so speaking of rereading, I love that in this book you use the word woke. And I was like, that is so current. <laughs> like I'm in my very, very early 30s. And even I'm struggling to keep up with the lingo. So do you, well, firstly, I imagine your children are a really big influence on that. But do you ever go back and read your old books and cringe at yourself?
0: Um, if I did reread them, which I start, yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> it's a little bit like the way I compare it to people who are just listening. Um, you know, who tell me they love an early book and not a more recent one is when you were in college or that university. Remember that essay you wrote you thought was so brilliant, and now you stumble across it in your kitchen, and you start reading, and go, Wow, this is crap! Why did I yeah. think this was good? And isn't it as crap? It's just that you aren't that person anymore. So, you know, when I'm writing a book, when I'm 27 or 28, I hate them because I, I see all of, the, all of the problems, I see all of the lines, I see, oh, uh, I see all of the seams. So I don't like them. And so I don't normally read them. I would never read my own book. Even if I'm doing the series, I'll have to do it from my memory. But now with the Netflix series, I got to go back and read them. <laughs> I gotta go back and read The Stranger, which was 2000, I don't know, 12, 14. So that wasn't so bad. But then I had to go back and read The Innocent, which was 2004, and The Woods, which was 2005, around then. And there's parts of them. I, but here's what's weird. There's parts I don't like, of course. There's parts I kind of do like. And then there's parts where even, I don't know where I'm going. (laughs) Where the hell will I go? I mean, I know the ending, but where the hell am I going with this? I'm like, "Ah, (laughs) oh So, yes, I I don't, I never look backwards as much as in a rearview mirror. Now I have to because Mm. of the shows. But other than that, I would never go back and read one of my own books.
1: So interesting. Do you have a favorite just from your own recollection?
0: You know, it's it's, because of the reason I just explained to you. You don't the even. most current is always my favorite here's the i don't have anything that, that i don't like there's no book that i said you know what that really wasn't your best effort i mean except for the first two which i don't like but outside of that i never look back and, and regret a book um or think it's you know it's not worthy or i didn't do my best work or so in that way i don't cringe but you know it's like you're listening to yourself on a tape recorder
1: yeah
0: yeah Ugh. i mean you, to, you just you know I just read about other artists that some people, some movie makers never watch their own films or whatever. I can't really, I have no real interest in reading this book again.
1: <laughs> what about other people's books? I know you went to college with Dan Brown and, uh, you know, we're friends with a lot of other writers, you know, the same, same fraternity. We don't have fraternities here, so... Um, yeah, we love Dan Brown books. Are there any other authors that you love reading, or do you guys read each other's books, or are you just so done with crime that you like?
0: <laughs> I mean, if you started naming people in crime fiction, I've read them all. A lot of them are friends of mine. One reason I hate to always mention them is I'll leave out a friend and they'll somehow hear and you go, dude, you forgot about me. I'm like, oh, I <laughs> but I read them all. I'm, I'm friendly with them all. Um, it's a really nice community. Crime fiction is a really nice community of people. It's very interesting that there's not. It's not really cutthroat. First of all, I think it's bad karma, just in yeah. general. Those are If you're wishing somebody ill, um, it's just bad karma. The two, the, my favorite sort of saying about this that I, that I often say is that no one has to fail so I can succeed. Yes. No one has to fail so I can succeed. Write that down, people. Put it on your thing, whatever you're doing in life. I actually think that the better other people are, the better I'm going to be. Because if you read a Michael Connolly book who I once went to Australia with, which is why his name just popped up, Michael Connolly and I, went to the tour of Australia together. Um, But Lee Child, Michael Connolly, who, you know, whoever you are reading now, Laura Lippman, Lisa Scattellini, and you love their book, it's just gonna make you wanna read more crime fiction.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: I'm going to do well if they do well. We all rise and sink together. So not only is it just bad karma, but it's also dumb. (laughs) Not with other fellow writers. Yeah.
1: another one i like is success doesn't halve when you share it it doubles i think that's another really nice one
0: true it's not fun really to have a success one of the things i do like about the tv versus the books is i can share the success with people mm-hmm. when i have a number you know the boy from the woods is, and i don't say it's to brag but so it hit number one on the new york times bestseller list great right i celebrated, but i celebrate alone when the stranger became a big sensation on netflix I had the whole cast, the crew, the director. Mm-hmm. I wanted the key grip to celebrate it. I wanted us all. I looked at myself more, you know, the book, I'm more like a tennis or a golfer. For the TV series, I feel like I'm captain of the World Cup team. <laughs> we're just like, we're gonna go bugging <laughs> all long with this thing, dudes. You know, we still, I, I'm, I'm you know working with the same people on something else right now. We're like, can you believe how the stranger is doing still, wow, it's really fun.
1: Oh, that's so cool. I also read your daughter wrote episode five. It's like you're bringing in your family. Everyone's getting involved.
0: It's interesting. We, I think we needed some young blood on the series and we didn't have, and I wanted to do something more with the teenagers. Uh, Cause in a book, the teenage, those, those teenage characters are not in the book. Um, so I wanted to do something more with them. And short my daughter Charlotte had written a few things um, that she wanted wanted this big internship in Cannes, France. And actually, sometimes you're too close to it. It was my producing partner, a woman named Nicholas Schindler, who was at Happy Valley, and Queer Spoke, and Last time in Halifax, amazing producer, my producing partner on um, Stranger. She said, what about Charlotte? Can we could <laughs> bring Charlotte in a room, and I'm like, okay, and then she was just dynamite. I mean, she just killed it. And so they gave her episode five to write. Um, I stayed out of that one as much as possible, but, She really did, you know, I think it's the funniest episode of the, of the eight of them and she did a great job and and now she's a a main asset on the the team.
1: Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) So before we move to the challenges and some of the, you know, the low lights that don't often make interviews, I think, you know, showing that no one really has a smooth sailing journey to success. First, what were some of the highlights? And, you know, you said you don't get to do all the fancy stuff all the time, but I'm sure there's been some really, really cool things that you... I mean, look,
0: my life has been lucky and fantastic. I... I've, I've been, I've gotten personal letters from three United States presidents who have read my books. Stop it. Yes, I've had lunch with them. And I, count as, I count as personal friends, thank goodness. I, if you look at my Facebook, my regular Facebook page, not my personal one, the photo I have up there is my favorite photo of all time where a bunch of soldiers during the Iraq war were reading my books. And they took a picture <sighs> holding a book with a handmade sign saying, Coban book club, Baghdad branch and you can you imagine right getting something like that and just yesterday when I was doing one uh, a talk like this a woman came on I was doing a Facebook live with a woman named Joan London and um, a person came on just to say that she'd just gone through a lot of rounds of chemo and my books got her through that yeah so there's so many highlights I mean my career has had so many highlights uh it's really a dream come true there's no other way to put it uh I'm extraordinarily lucky um i I've met, I've done a lot of incredible things. I've, been, you know, I've gotten a lot of ridiculous awards and accolades, um, met a lot of people, worked with a lot of great people. Um, but really the, the coolest is when people just tell me what the books, you know, now in quarantine, I'm getting every day that, uh, you know, your book really helped me while I'm mm-hmm. sitting stuck in my home or, you know, we, my whole family watched The Stranger for a whole day. We just all sat in front of that TV and watched The Stranger And we're grateful that you were able to help us during this time. And that's like, wow, I mean, how do you, I have so, my career has been, I have so many highlights, not in a braggy way. It just has because I'm really, really lucky that I get to do I have the greatest job in the world and I get to do it. It's really, you know, very fortunate.
1: I love that. I have to send you uh, the messages that came through when I said I was going to interview of people, you telling the stories of how, you know, as an author, you don't get to see how much of an impact your creations have on people's day to day, but it must be lovely.
0: It's the one positive of social media. It's not a negative, but the one positive is if you, if you tag me, if you're following me on Instagram, Harlan Coben uh, or Twitter, Harlan Coben or Facebook, Harlan Coben books, and you tag me. 95% 95% of the time, I'm going to see. You know, I may not be able to respond. Sometimes I will. And a lot of times I'll take the picture that you post on Instagram and I'll post it on my page. Why not? It's fun to share. Um, so I do see it and it's really, it is nice. It really mm-hmm. means a lot to me.
1: What about some of the challenges? You know, I think self-doubt is one of the ones that comes up the most in this podcast. And I think it's been the most impactful because the people that come, come on seem so outwardly confident and like they would never doubt themselves. But I think it's something we can all get quite afflicted with, particularly in the earliest stages of your career when you're sort of like, you know, I can't believe I'm, I can write a novel. No one's publishing it. And am I crap? Is it crap? You know, how have you navigated that feeling? And also, of course, books get reviewed. You know, do you read the bad reviews? How do you combat that, that feeling of doubt?
0: Well, let's break it down. Uh, I mean, I, I think all, uh, only one of the other sayings that I, I, I tell people is only bad writers think they're good. I don't know any writer who's good, who says, oh, you know what, I'm really wonderful, yeah. it's going so easy for me. None. only bad writers think they're good. I'll tell a quick, which will also sound braggy story, but Stephen King, um, in the book, The Outsiders, he made me a character. And so, no way. he sends me an email and, uh, and says, he says, you know, I-, I wanna make you a character in a book, is that okay? I'm like, uh, yeah, it's, not the case, <laughs> it's the coolest thing ever. He goes, well, I want to send you the book and make sure it's okay first. So he sends me the book. And because I'm an egomaniac, of course, what do I do? I search for my name, right? And it says, shows up 64 times your name's mentioned. So I'm passing out. And, but I can tell that Steve, this is Stephen King now, okay, is anxious to get my feedback because he's worried I won't like it. Stephen King is <laughs> so worried that, some, that I might not like his book. So it never goes away. And that's why he's so great yeah and so that fear never leaves you we all think the, the imposter syndrome we all have it don't worry if you have it if you don't have it let me tell you this way if you don't have it quit. if you want to be a writer and you are completely confident that you are great quick because you probably stick really mm-hmm. you do um if you don't have those doubts if you don't have those days when you go whoa i suck and i suck bad um you're probably not you're not you're not a writer or an artist so mm-hmm. that's that's the part about um self-doubt
1: yeah, I think so too. I once thought, you know, I used, to, I used to berate myself when I'd get up for a speaking gig or something and think, why am I never getting more confident? Why am I still getting this negative self-talk in my brain? And, and then I realized it's actually a sign that you still care about the outcome, that you're invested enough in delivering a good job. And now if, you know, I'm like, if I ever get complacent, I'd worry about myself.
0: You start getting confident and not worrying. That's when that author's writing those books that you say, oh, he started to phone it in.
1: Mm.
0: i don't mean you have to torture yourself but you have to you have to beat yourself up a little bit
1: what about burnout and you know this incessant like the way the world has changed since you started writing it's become so digital and fast and i kind of think the pace of our lives has evolved much faster than our bodies have been able to cope with which is why there's so much mental illness and anxiety and stress how have you managed that transition through your career and and in
0: life i try to pay much attention to it i mean i've always been driven by the same thing make writing a better book
1: mm. i've
0: always chased your hearts and never your dollars and i always thought the dollars would follow and in some cases i probably left money in a table but i don't give a shit part my language uh if the book if the work is going to be good enough and you're going to read it and want to tell your friends about it the money's going to follow the success is going to follow mm. so i've always tried to just focus I'm writing the best book that I can. And the other part of it, the insecurity part is, we were mentioning before, all the great things that have happened in my life. In my mind, if I stop writing, great things go away, <laughs> right? So that's another thing that drives me back. Because the, the, you know, the financial rewards anymore are not a factor too much anyway. I mean, mm. I have enough. So it's not like the days when I was doing it to feed a family. But that, that still, even then, didn't drive me. It was always the work. And wanting to get better at it, wanting you to stay up later at night, wanting to give me <laughs> more. As much as I love the stranger, it's in my rearview mirror now. I need the next show to be even better. You know, that's sort of how I how I treat her.
1: Do you find that you know? I almost find that the most driven people don't have a problem with motivation, but they do have a problem with pacing themselves because there's no incentive to rest because you know you said you're passionate about what you do have you found it hard to slow down and not always be what's the next thing what's the next great thing I can do I found that when I was a corporate and I wasn't super passionate I could create boundaries because I'd want to finish work but as soon as I moved into something I love I'm like why would I rest there's no incentive but then it eats you up because you know I've found that that management of your pace difficult
0: well because I think I had the kids um, I was forced not to just be able to disappear into writing. But <laughs> I don't have a lot of other hobbies or interests, um, because most people's hobbies are creative, like they paint. They want to create something, but my job is to create. Mm. And part of what drives me is, well, not what drives me, but if I'm not writing, I don't, I'm not, I don't feel balanced. So, you know, life is all about balance, right? You want your spouse relationship with your kids, with your friends, with your family. You need your health. You need to be exercising, eating well. And if all those things are going well, but I'm not writing well, I'm out of balance. Writing is a big part of that balance for me. So I need to be sort of writing. You know, if I'm not writing well, everything else could be going well, but I'm I'm going to get knocked out of balance eventually. So I, you know, and, even, and also guilt is a big part of it. So if I'm doing something else, there's always a little voice in my head that says, ah, you should be writing. <laughs> even when I'm, when I'm reading sometimes or I'm enjoying something, there's always a small voice that says, well, you know, you could be writing instead. And that voice really kind of never goes away.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's probably what helps you actually get them done at the same time, (laughs) which leads really nicely into the last section, which is play TA, in that, you know, it's very, very difficult in today's world to create an identity that's separate in any way to being productive or achieving. And I think a lot of us have this metric of measuring our life as success or money or financial or objective milestones, and we just forget joy. We're not meant to just kind of work and die. It's not what we're here for. So you know, I feel that element of play and joy has lost its way a bit over the last little while. So, even when that little voice in your head is telling you to get back to writing, what do you allow yourself in your life for pleasure and for play? Is there anything that's completely separate to crime fiction?
0: I golf. That's about it. I mean, and I, I golf with some dear friends, and we travel. And we're all terrible at it, which helps.
1: That's even better, though. One of the
0: things that one of the things that helps is. My ambitions and my goals have always been sort of small and incremental rather than. I was asked recently by an interviewer, I was in France, it's like, did you ever, you know, you you hit, did you ever dream that one of your books would be a number one bestseller in France? I'm like, dude, this is so far beyond anything I would have ever allowed myself to imagine. So when I started out going back to when I was in my 20s, my goal was just to have one book published. Oh my God, if I could just have one book published, I could just. One day, walk past the bookstore and see my book. That's it. That's all I want. That's all I want. then well, I got two books published. Just two. That's all. So I know it's not a fluke. And it's I could just scratch out a living, maybe. Just just do this enough that I could scratch out. I don't think I can eat much money. Just a little bit. Well, if I could just skim a bestseller, just one time, see my name on the New York Times bestseller. Give me number fifteen. Just one time seeing it. Well, if I could hit the top ten, if I could hit one, so. My goals in those ways have always been incremental and I think that's super healthy. Yeah. The second thing that was super healthy when I'm starting out that you guys don't have today is I didn't know any better because, you know, my books first were coming out in the early nineties. Amazon wasn't really a thing yet. So I wasn't checking my rank. I had no idea. So like I was published by a paperback house called uh, Dell publishing And I thought I was the cat's ass. (laughs) Cat's ass. I had no idea. I mean, I was nothing. I was getting paid $5,000 a book. They were printing 15,000 paperbacks. Just for those who don't understand the numbers, that's, that's crap. It's really terrible. But I didn't know any better. So I thought, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a published author. I'm going to keep going. And if somebody told me the odds, which in fact, in those days, Dell was doing three authors a month. They did 36 books a year. And I think there's one other author who's still published from those years. Not only successful, just published. So if I knew those odds, I may have gotten really upset if I'd done research and known it, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. I thought I was doing great. So put your head down also a little bit. Don't worry if your ranking is 1,750,000. You have to just produce the next book?
1: Oh, I love that. In in my book, there's two chapters that are, you know, just resonate this just resonates so strongly with them. You know, one of them is dream big but plan small. You have to have dreams big enough that motivate you to get there, but your immediate next step goal has to be small enough that you can focus on it and and actually, you know, get it done. So you're not distracted by what's out there and all you need to do is this bit and this bit and this bit and and the other thing is i think the blinkers sometimes you just need to put blinkers on and block out all the crap because that need for social comparison is so destructive so i think yeah i love that idea of just keeping you focused and don't look at your rankings just get it done well Um, a lot of
0: authors now ask me about uh, marketing and they say what do you think of the ebook versus the hardcover and what about chain storage versus independence and I become like a little kid and I stick my fingers in my ear and go la, 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 la. I can't hear you because I'm not smart enough to know if Amazon is destructive or if this chain bookstore is going to take over or if I should or if I should be worried about I don't know. All I know is the one thing I can control is my product. We are on the content side of the business. And if people read the books on a Kindle, if they read a book in hardcover, if they listen on audio, or if they read it on damn stone tablets, if, it's the, if the product is good enough, if your book is good enough, the one thing in control, the rest of it will either take care of itself or it's not. But I don't have the power to change any of that. So know what you can do and what you shouldn't. So I just always focused on the book. I am the worst at knowing what works in the business and. And people today are, again, it's a different world than when I came. They're worried about their Amazon rankings or how do they increase their readership and marketing. I don't know any books who really make it fictionalized by marketing. It's always word of mouth. Do you ever buy a mm-hmm. book because of an ad or because it popped up? No, you buy it because your friend tells you to read it. So concentrate on the next book, maybe.
1: Yeah, I love that. In terms of how you recharge, I also read something that I laughed about a lot, (laughs) that you're a socially adept introvert, which I think is quite common to a lot of people that, you know, you can do the whole outward facing thing, but to recharge, you really need to have, you know, just some quiet time away. So what do you do in those times? Do you watch Netflix? Do you do yoga? Like, how do you chill when you're not working and you're just playing for pleasure?
0: Mostly, most of my life has been family stuff just because, you know, when when you have four kids, it's pretty. Dominant.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. My,
0: my wife is not an introvert. And when she comes home, and she's we have this sort of opposite sort of thing where she goes into work and comes home. And she's anxious to talk about work and stuff like that. So I spend a lot of time talking. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking together. So I don't really um, do much of that. But I've written, I think this is my 31st or 32nd book, The Boy for the Woods. That's a lot of time alone in a room. And so, of course, you're an introvert if you do it to some degree. And one of the cool things has been about the TV stuff is they kind of complement each other. So I'll, you know, I get lonely cause I'm sitting here all day long. So I'll go on set and I'll hang with the actors and actresses and all that for a couple of days. And I'm like, okay, I'm losing my mind. I get back home. I'll lock myself back in the room and I write again. Then I get really lonely, you know? So they kind of, I haven't really, by doing the TV stuff, even though I've done a lot recently, it hasn't slowed down at all my pace on my books.
1: Oh, that's cool. So, second last question, just to finish out, what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation?
0: Uh, let's see. Boy, I'm so boring. I have a tattoo.
1: Oh yeah, tattoos is always one of them. What is it?
0: I can't. I can't show you. <laughs> I like keeping mysteries. I once saw American Vice President Hubert Humphrey naked. Uh, <laughs>
1: like one on one naked or in a group?
0: That's that's all I'm gonna say. You know, <laughs> I, I, to, I need to keep the mystery going I
1: love it <laughs> do you have like a snack or anything when you're riding like I, I find I forget to eat or, or I just eat and repeat like I'll eat a bag of nuts <laughs> one of the
0: reasons I like to be upstairs away from the kitchen because I will snack a lot I'm a big almond butter peanut butter oh. dipping in guy so I got it, and that's not yeah you know, it's not good for me so I gotta stay away I drink at least two uh, two maybe three cups of coffee and some tea I just need to You just need to do something, right? You need to do something with your hands. But no, I don't really have a go-to snack. I try to stay with nuts because I think they're probably the healthiest.
1: Oh, I just go straight to the peanut butter with a spoon. And then I'm like, oh no, oh, I need to put this away.
0: But oh, it's natural peanut butter. Like that makes it better.
1: Totally. It's good. Fat is good for you. You know, your heart and your skin and (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And since I love quotes so much, what's your favorite motivational quote?
0: The one that I, well, this is my own that I I tell this to my kids all the time. Uh, There's there's two I always tell my kids that really annoy them Um, because they've heard it a million times. But uh, (laughs) you bring your own weather to the picnic. That's the one I, that's the, that's the one I I try to, uh, I tell them all the time. You bring your own weather to the picnic. The other one is that uh, every person you meet has hopes and dreams. So if you see someone on the street, be the richest man, the poorest man, be someone you'd hate, you're troubled or whatever just remember they have hopes and dreams and it helps humanize and give you empathy. As a writer, it's always good. I always ask myself that question when I'm creating a character. What are, what are their hopes and dreams? Even the smallest character, what do they want in life? What what, 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 what what let them down? And it's a good way of trying to treat people, especially in this era where we sort of hate the other side. Um, what are their hopes and dreams?
1: I love that. They're both beautiful. And especially uh, the picnic that we're all having in our homes. Uh, I love that we can bring our own weather. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Harlan. This has been such a pleasure. I'll make sure to put links to uh, The Stranger, The Woods, and all the series coming out, all your books. Yeah, I feel like everyone's seen all of them anyway, but uh, yeah, all your links. Is there anything else coming out that you'd like to share?
0: Nope, just The Woods, and then I'm uh, writing, writing the next book
1: perfect. Well, we await it very keenly.
0: Thank you very much.
1: I hope you guys found this as fascinating as I did. I absolutely love diving under the surface of the books we read or the shows we watch all the things in our lives around us and hearing about how different people ended up finding what they love. I'm so grateful to have you all to curate for and to have a justification really for exploring different stories and meeting wonderful new people all around the world. So if you ever have any suggestions or requests of interesting people, please do always let me know if you enjoyed this one or have read or watched any of harlan's wonderful creations please do tag him at harlan coben and spoonful of sarah of course or seize the yay as you've heard it means the world for him and myself to hear how you've experienced our work the full video will follow too shortly on youtube to my 89 followers i think i have oh my gosh i'm famous i love sharing people's facial expressions when they talk about what they love too and thought that during ISA, that would be a really nice time for us to add a little human element to the episodes while everyone's at home on Zoom. So I hope you've enjoyed that too. As always, please keep those delightful reviews, suggestions and requests forthcoming. I love to keep the ablehood happy. And if you haven't joined the Facebook group, which is a wonderful way to throw thoughts out there, please do. The link is in the show notes. Hope you're having a great week and a seizing your yay.